At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. I'm Lisa Ram, and I want to say welcome back to Theron Johnson, our Democratic strategist, and hello again to Brian Robinson, our Republican strategist, and this is another edition of Political Breakfast. How are you guys doing? Great, Lisa. How are you? Good to be back. Good to be back, Lisa. Thank you. All right. You know, it's been quite the week here in Georgia, as it always is, it seems, you know, with it being election season. A lot of talk surrounding, what, redistricting and then the infrastructure bill. And then there's Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker polling uh, pretty high. Hasn't said if he's running or not. Hasn't said much of anything. What what should we think of all of this? Well, I, I have been hearing about him making certain moves toward starting his candidacy. And there's evidence that you know he's talking to consultants looking perhaps for places to have a campaign office and and that kind of thing and as far as polling goes it makes perfectly good sense that this guy would pull off the charts i mean uh, to begin with because he's a georgia icon i mean i am 46 years old and i have a picture of him on my wall at home but and, no but no real presence lately though so that that's baffling no and i don't i wonder one thing for sure for sure lisa and i you know i think theron would kind of be in the same generational bracket here being from he's from athens is you know when i, I mean, he was like my first ever hero and i don't know that that's gonna be true for every other generation of georgians like for my my nephews you know todd Gurley is their their hero so it's 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 different but for many Georgians of a certain age, particularly people most likely to vote, he, he's, a, he's a big star. Here's the deal for Herschel that he's going to face, though, is that because of that celebrity, because of that iconic status that he has in Georgia, there is a, a real possibility that his highest polling numbers are on the day that he announces. Because as soon as he starts telling people what he believes in politics, then some of that people, uh, some of those people in the poll who said they like Herschel Walker are going to begin to peel off because he can't be everything to all people. Uh, you can be, you can be that when you are a celebrity. You can you can be beloved or or seen as neutral. But once you become a political candidate and you got to take stands, some of that shine begins to wear off a little bit. And that's not that has nothing to do with Herschel Walker, but that's true with any celebrity status candidate. So, Lisa, you know, this this one is hard for me because, as Brian mentioned, I, I'm a huge Georgia Bulldog fan and I was, you know, born in Atlanta, but grew up in Athens. And so I just remember those days of listening to the radio, uh, Larry Munson and watching television with my grandfather as Herschel Walker would run the ball. And, and he was a fantastic Georgia running back. But I think the first thing that we have to really do here on this podcast is just be realistic. Right. 
I really think that someone really needs to pull Herschel to the side. And I know that he's had a failed attempt to try to hire some consultants in Georgia. I've heard that the, the consultants have been actually very discouraged with Herschel because he won't make a decision, because he won't listen. And I think that what he understands, Lisa, is that this is a this is a 180 for him. I mean, don't get me wrong. Herschel Walker, the football player, the Heisman Trophy winner, a Georgia icon, I'm fine with that. But first and foremost, he needs to move to Georgia and have a permanent residence here. I don't know if that's happened. Secondly, I think the Republicans are really setting Herschel up to fail because no one has had any conversations about his knowledge on policy issues. Where is he on healthcare issues? Where is he on jobs? You know, infrastructure. I mean, how can you be a U.S. Senate candidate, Lisa, and you have no- silent? Yeah, I mean, you, you like you have. We, we don't know where he stands, and he can't just get out here and say, "Hey, vote for me," because you guys remember me running a football in Sanford Stadium, and Vince Dooley was like my father, my mentor. And oh, by the way. Donald Trump was like my father because he's not a racist because I know his kids and I done Christmas you know dinners with them and all that. So I honestly think that if I can get a message to Hurst Walker and Brian, tell some of your very close friends who I know have been talking to him, I actually think he should not run. I don't think he has any idea of the magnitude of scrutiny from his own party uh, that he's going to receive. And then the last thing I'll say is this, Lisa. At the end of the day, all these qualified candidates out here that could run for office on the GOP. The best they got is Herschel Walker. I mean, really, like this whole celebrity <laughs> sort of thing. That's not it, fair. It, it, no, no, That's I'm, not I'm, fair. no, I'm being, I'm being honest. And the scrutiny has already started. Yeah. I, I believe oh, they the live in Texas. Yeah. And his wife voted here in Georgia. That's a big story. Using a Fulton yeah. County, you know, address. And, you know, he was tough, you know, on Fulton County saying, you know, that all this fraud took place. And so now people are saying, hmm, you know, what did your wife do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And Lisa, so, I'm not going to let Brian off the hook. Brian Robinson got on his podcast and talked about John Ossoff's hair. Okay. He he talked ah, about. I he, said he's got great hair. Okay. He's but got, but, you, but you, you, you talked he about how cool he didn't have hair. a, you know, permanent job. And, you know, he was privileged. I mean, you said all these things about now our senior U.S. Senator from Georgia. I think, I think other people said these things, and you're putting those words in well, my you, mouth. Well, you amplify. I did it, right? say he had great hair. That, right. that so, part is true. So I'm saying Herschel Walker is a great football player. I agree with that. But that doesn't necessarily qualify him to run to be the U.S. Senator from Georgia. I just don't and Theron so. knows this. At Theron's house, I, I was with John Ossoff at Theron's house a couple of years ago, and I said to his face, the hair is even better in person. <laughs> it's even better in person. <laughs> he has good hair. He so does. I, you know, he I, does. I, I'm not being sly or mean about it. But you, know, you talk about the wife and the story this week about her voting in Georgia and the, the AJC story and her hanging up on the reporter. You know, as, to Theron's point about my buddies talking to Herschel, the people that I have, you know, in my circles who have spoken with him, I know that his wife, and he just got married like this year. They've been together for a long time, but just got married this year. You know, she's not particularly hot on the idea. So I think that she's been a bit of a hurdle to overcome. And look, I, I, we, we, we face that all the time, you know, in, in our business, dealing with candidates who whose spouses don't want them to do it, whether they're men or women. It, it's just it, it's very disruptive for a family to to get into a campaign. So I, I think that's a very legit thing for him to to think through. Now, what Theron said about does he have policy depth, that is I raised the same issue privately. Yeah, no platform. No yeah. platform at all. But, hey, sometimes nothing is a strategy, right? <laughs> right? I mean, Maybe. he's going to come in with 100% name ID, uh, you know, presumably will be able to raise money. Maybe the thing to do is to like buy a house 
in Georgia or move your residency to Georgia. He already owns multiple homes here in Georgia. Move your residency here. Stay in Texas. <laughs> And just and just run a campaign, you know, what? with yeah. with Herschel Walker running over Tennessee linemen, and and that's going to be maybe that's the best option. And and I think the simple question, Lisa, for me, and and, I, and I'll be objective because again, I am a huge Herschel Walker fan. Listen, I walked in the national championship with Herschel Walker. I posted it on social media. So for all the folks who want to go out and say, well, you were talking bad about Herschel Walker, but it's this picture of you on Instagram or Facebook shaking his hand and walking into the national championship. Yes. I was like a fangirl, Lisa. Like when I saw him. My, <laughs> much respect yeah, for the yeah, person. Yeah. I mean, I was just much respect for him. But it was the football player. But listen, here's a simple question that Herschel and his team, whoever that may be, have to ask themselves. In a very heavily Republican male electorate doing a primary, can he pull enough votes from credible people like Lathan Sadler, who I'm saying credible, Brian. I know that's your guy. You know, people like Gary Black, who's credible. And I'm gonna, I'm even going to throw in Kelvin King, right? People who have been here in Georgia as Republicans fighting for the Republican principles. Can he pull enough white votes to basically beat those three and maybe even, you know, maybe a fourth? I mean, I'm hearing rumors that David Perdue hasn't ruled it out completely. I hear right. that he's waiting in the wings. And so, Lisa, yeah. can he get enough white votes in their primary to be victorious? Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I am, I am conflicted a little bit here, like them, like them as my candidate. But uh, yes, he can't get enough white votes. Certainly, I mean, the polling backs it up right now. If, if you poll Republican primary voters, you're, you're talking about white voters for the most part, and and he does very well with them. So I don't, I don't think that that uh, is the issue. All right, well, we'll wait and see. Uh, speak up, Herschel. Speak up. We're waiting to hear from you. We're going to take a break here, and when we return, our special guest today is State Representative B. Wynn. Voting rights and redistricting on her mind today. We're going to welcome, welcome her when we return. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back. We're here with Political Breakfast and joining us at the table is State Representative B. Wynn, who is also a candidate for Secretary of State. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are so glad to, to have you today. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be on with y'all. And I love just listening to this conversation about Herschel Walker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of thoughts there. And, you know, we didn't touch on the mayoral race, but, you know, a lot of name recognition there with Reed polling very high. So uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, voting season, isn't it? You're fresh back from Washington with a contingent of lawmakers uh, fighting for federal voting rights and and. I found it interesting that you said not too long ago that 
everyone at every level, no matter no matter what your politics are, city, state, and federal should be on the same page when it comes to this one issue. Why is that? Look, I mean, voting is the tool that we use here in this country that is so fundamentally important. So I'm the daughter of Vietnamese refugees, and they left their country in the late 70s, and they fled in the middle of the night on a boat because they were seeking these freedoms, the freedom of speech, the freedom to assemble, um, the right to free and fair elections, and freedom of press. And so as I'm watching everything unfold um, in Georgia and across the country, I'm thinking this is the fundamental tool that we need to protect. It is what we use so that we can have arguments over who we want to represent us and arguments over policy uh, positions that we support or we don't support. And when we take that right away and then we combine it with the subversion, the subversion of democracy, that is going to forever change our country. And when we take those steps forward, it is very, very hard to undo. So I feel like everybody should be on the same page. And I just remember going to Randolph County a couple of years ago when there were seven out of nine precincts being slated for closure. And I went door to door because if you get 20 percent of registered voters to sign a petition, they keep those precincts open. And I talked to Republicans who wanted their precincts to remain open because at the end of the day, every single person wants voting to be accessible and that right to be preserved. I have a question for you, B, and, and welcome. Glad to have you. Um, glad to have another person from Augusta on the show. We're we're very rarely represented here. Um, the uh, Democrats in polling have a higher opinion of Brad Ravensburger than than Republican voters do. He gets pretty high marks from Democrats for standing up in the face of all of these allegations about the twenty twenty election. How much? Is that an issue for you when this the current Republican incumbent is somebody that your party thinks has been courageous? You know, I don't think that is actually an issue. So what I tell people all the time is, look, I was like many Americans, many Georgians, holding my breath to see what Secretary of State Raffensperger would do when Trump asked him to find those extra 11,000 votes. And I breathed a sigh of relief when he chose not to do it. But the reality is... Raffensperger also supports Senate Bill 202. He's very quick to attack Stacey Abrams. He supports this Fulton County takeover. And people are seeing this double speak. And they want him to be principled in what he actually believes. Had he been doing something like Jeff Duncan, where Jeff is like, this is not the party that I know. This is not the party that I want to be a part of. This is what I think the Republican Party should be like. Whereas Raffensperger is trying to appease to a base that has rejected him. And I don't see him being able to make it out of that Republican primary. And so I think it's very likely that Jody Heiss is going to beat him. That is Trump's guy. And if that is the case, I think we are going to see a repeat of what happened in 2020 when voters are going to cross over and say, we are not voting for this guy who said we're having our uh, 1776 moment, who is a January 6th sympathizer, who believes that women should ask for permission to run for office or have a job or whatever it was. Yeah, from, from their husbands, <laughs> from their yeah. husbands. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Recently, yeah. Raffensperger becoming very vocal about having Fulton election chief Richard Barron fired. What are your thoughts on that? 
Look, I think that Raffensperger has had plenty of opportunity to show himself as a true leader, which means being a collaborative partner with local election boards. He's come to committee, my committee, many times over the last few years, and he has always deflected responsibility and laid blame on local election boards. And obviously, there are a lot of improvements that can be made across all 159 counties. But as a sitting state rep, what I did last year when I saw some of the challenges we faced in DeKalb is I started working with our local elections board and our commissioners, and we were like, here are the things we want to see in order to have a smoother election in the general election. He has failed to do any of those things, and he his office sent in an independent observer to observe Fulton County in uh, in November and in January, and they did not find any evidence of voter fraud. To me, a real leader would say, look, y'all are not doing the job that you should be doing. And here are the ways the Secretary of State's office can help you get to a point where you are not facing the same challenges that you're facing. And I will say that Fulton County did make drastic improvements. I mean, opening the State Farm Arena was brilliant. I mean, those are the things that happened because local leaders said, what is it that we have to do to change how that primary was run versus the general when we were learning how to vote by mail in in such massive numbers during a pandemic and dealing with new machines at the same time. Well, sure. Here's here's the issue, though, is that the problems for Fulton County didn't begin with last year's primary. They've been systemic for many years. I think we we can all agree to that. And the absentee ballot program that they had during the primary last year was inexcusable. I saw many of your Democratic colleagues in the General Assembly tweeting every day about, still haven't gotten my ballot, still haven't gotten my ballot. No other county had that problem, right? So that, that's always been my, my argument is, sure, it was it was unprecedented and there was a huge challenge, but other counties didn't have the huge issues that, that Fulton did. And that is run by uh, a Democratic administration and – and yet Republicans get blamed for voter suppression because these systems don't work right. That's the problem that I have with all of this. If you're elected secretary of state, how would you push back on this movement for the state to take uh, take control over Fulton elections? Well, to Brian's point, if this had been going on for many cycles, right, and we had secretary of state Raffensperger and Kim, what were they doing under their leadership to address this from the standpoint of being the top elections official for the entire state of Georgia. So my issue here is if you're not going to, in good faith, come to the table and say, how is it that we can increase training? How is it that we can better administer these elections and fix our mistakes and give them some real solutions? Because through hours and hours of committee meetings, we offered solutions to Republicans that could have been passed across the board for all election boards, and they were rejected repeatedly. I can't tell you, there was one one day I offered an amendment, and this is so simple in nature. I said, let's drop an amendment that says if your polling precinct is consolidated or closed, then the local election boards have to use everything at their disposal, text you, email you, call you, and give you this information instead of mail something in the mail. That is how campaigns operate. You use every available mechanism you can to reach voters because it takes five to seven times to get something in front of somebody to make them remember or whatever. And I'm like, if we're running our elections like this as a candidate and we're using different mechanisms that are available to us that are not hard to do, sending a text. I mean, most city governments have that. 311 text me, city of Atlanta text me. Why not ask local election boards to say, hey, your precinct closed are consolidated. Send that notice out. And I was fought tooth and nail. It passed the first time. They put it up for a revote. 
and then it failed the second time because the reality is they're just not operating in good faith. Mm-hmm. Let me interject here and say that uh, Secretary Raffensperger plans to be a guest on uh, Political Breakfast next week. Uh, Theron, I see you shaking your head there. What, what are your thoughts on this? No, I, I think State Representative Wynn is making some excellent points. And, you know, thank you for, for coming on and really sort of sharing your vision uh, and why you're running. I, I kind of I, I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't sort of um, say, uh, be I didn't think about you and a lot of my Asian-American friends when we saw the horrific um massacre, the, the the targeted, you know, hate, murder, um, what happened in Atlanta a few months ago. And we had a very uncomfortable, robust debate between Brian and I. Uh, actually, I think it probably uh, hurt our friendship a little bit because we uh, agreed on some things, but we actually disagree on sort of the in- intent. So, you know, where I'm going with this is, you know, we want our listeners to really um, kind of like walk in your shoes a little bit and sort of how it's been you know, being an Asian American Pacific Islander uh, elected official in a in a Republican controlled legislature, you know, tell us a little bit about that experience. And I know you were on the front line. I think you were not, if not the first, you were definitely maybe two, but one of the first to step up um, and pull together a coalition of other your colleagues in the legislature. So tell tell us, you know, how that's coming along. I know there's still a movement. You know, stop the Asian hate. I, I posted a hashtag before. And then also, you know, how do you think, um, you know, running statewide in Georgia, um, you know, trying to make a historic run, um, you know, what is sort of your plan to deal with some of the convincing that you're going to have to do to not just Democrats, but also, you know, some moderate independent voters, um, you know, at a time where we're very divided as a state? Thanks for um, asking that, Baron. It was an extremely challenging time. Um, I think that one of the hard things about, um, having that lack of representation is that there's so much responsibility that falls on the shoulders of a very, very few people. And so when this happened, you know, I remember I was like, you know, at home and I, my phone started blowing up. Everyone started saying, look at what's happening here. And my fear was that it was a hate-based crime. And then the more that I learned about it, the more, you know, convinced that I was of it. But except for, it just got worse and worse and worse. The details became worse. It was how brutally violent it was, how these victims were shot in close range in the face, in the head, how one of the coworkers described that when one of the women was shot, it happened so rapidly, she had no last words. She couldn't even react to it. And then here we are in this space where um, we know he targeted three Asian businesses, six Asian women were killed as a result. And we start seeing this coverage where the victims are being disparaged because in America, we oftentimes want a perfect victim. And we also heard Cherokee County come out and say, you know, this guy had a bad day. And then we hear these stories of an alleged sex addiction. But what was really, really disheartening was the messages that I received from people who disagreed with me that it was a hate crime. And I think that we can disagree on, you know, the merits of whether or not it was a hate crime, but we cannot change the fact that it had the impact that a hate crime is intended to to have on people, which is terrorizing an entire community. And people were and are terrified, and not just in Georgia, but across the country. But what I received were messages from people who were extremely angry that I said, this is a hate crime. And instead of 
trying to um, offer any kind of humanity. They were disparaging the women and calling them names. And as somebody who had, you know, been in a room and, you know, one of the first times I became emotional about this was when the president and vice president came and one of the victim's children read a letter written to the president and the vice president. And it was the first time we were actually hearing from the victim's families. And it took so long to even figure out who some of the women were, which I think is another issue, that invisibility and all these other things compounded on top of each other. But this kid is saying, you know, please stop disparaging my mom and, you know, assuming anything about her and what she did for a living. Um, And here I am trying to figure out what would compel you to write such nasty messages to a community that is clearly hurting and clearly in pain because you have a difference of opinion, but you have to be disparaging about it. And that's what I cannot wrap my mind around. And and during the process, you said the media, the media didn't do its job correctly. Has the media done a better job since uh, the small shootings? You know, I think that a lot of media rooms have these internal conversations about how to do better. And we're conscientious about bringing in AAPI reporters to cover this story, especially because there was a language barrier and there's cultural nuances. But when the Cherokee County decision came out, again, what I saw being reported in the media was all about the perpetrator and his alleged sex addiction. And um, you didn't really see a whole lot on the women and their families. And so I think there's a lot of improvement to be had on that media side. You know, I I, uh, have not followed it as closely as you, but I'm more of a casual observer of it as a result of that. And that has not been my takeaway. I I have seen in local media stories about the survivors of the people who were killed and the struggles that they're facing now and uh, and and their loss. And uh, I don't feel like the killer has been glamorized or overly focused on. And I think the, the, the Cherokee County Sheriff's deputy who made that comment about he's had a bad day, if you go back and look at, he was giving a context and he was responding to a question. Uh, he wasn't saying, hey, you know, no, nothing to see here. This guy's having a bad day. It's, you know, who cares about the victims? That That's not what what happened there. And I was horrified by that day as, as anybody. You know, I, as I mentioned, when it happened, I was bringing my daughter home from school over Piedmont Road the day that it happened around the same time. And, you know, I want to see that guy prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But you said something very important there, B, which is that uh, it had the effect of terrorizing a community, but that's not the the way we judge who we charge with hate crimes. We have to look at intent. And my problem with the hate crimes, and and as I've said here, I'm more okay with saying this is a hate crime against women. I can get on board with that uh, because women obviously were the target. Even in the sex addiction storyline, they're still the the, the target. But there's no evidence that we have found that this guy had any sort of anti-Asian American manifesto. He wasn't yelling anti-Asian slurs or saying anything like that as he was committing these crimes. I think, and I played a role in getting the hate crimes bill passed. I went and worked at the legislature for those two two weeks to to help that effort. So I'm a supporter of the law. But my thing is, I don't think that this meets the standards of the law. So 
you know, a couple of things. So Brian, I think that there was a transition in how media started to report the story because um, I mentioned earlier that newsrooms started getting together and having these really intensive conversations about how they were reporting the story. And I had a very emotional conversation with um, one of our local news reporters who was at the Capitol. And he just happened to pull me aside and he said, we, we met for two days and just had a really intensive conversation. Half the people were crying and he started to tear up and here he's a white man. Right. And he's like, I didn't know that, you know, we were blind. It was a blind spot that people couldn't see until they got Asian people in the room. And specifically, I think Asian women, but where I think the hate crimes, the way that in which we define hate crimes doesn't encapsulate everything that it needs to encapsulate, right? So I think about when um, Ahmaud Arbery was killed, initially people were saying it wasn't a hate crime and it wasn't until there was evidence that there were slurs used on camera that people changed their minds or it met the threshold of the evidence that we need in order to determine whether or not something is a hate crime. So this kid clearly goes to three Asian-owned businesses. He passes other businesses along the way, right? He's from Cherokee County. I think any of us who live here, we don't just drive from Cherokee to Atlanta randomly. He selected these businesses for a reason. And so he starts in Cherokee and then he goes to two other Asian-owned businesses. And he associates in his mind, this is, this is the part that gets more complicated. He doesn't say it out loud, but he clearly associates Asian women as the reason he has the sex addiction. He blames them specifically. It's not any other race. It is Asian women specifically. And when you take into this context of this over-sexualization of Asian women, both here in the United States and globally, it's a really lengthy conversation to have and really complex. But it is widely accepted, I think, that Asian women are supposed to be these sexual subservient beings. And so that is what allowed him to dehumanize these women in order for him to commit this atrocious act against him. There was a, a lot of outrage when he struck that plea deal. Were you one of those that was really upset that he struck that plea deal? I was or accepted not. That plea deal? Right. I think my emotions around it are a little bit more, they're nuanced because on one hand, I understand that for families, they wanted the plea deal. They did not want to go through trial. And it was really hard on them, specifically one of the daughters who's a young Asian woman watching that. And especially their moms being dragged through this and disparaged in the aftermath. And I knew that the family, it was important to the families to not have to sit through trial and that there was a resolution and an outcome, right? And I hope that it provided some sense of closure. But, you know, my general sentiment is we can't rely on the judicial system as a tool in the aftermath. We've got to figure out how we prevent this in the first place. There's no justice in the judicial system. There's accountability, certainly. But justice to me is how did we end up in this position where these women were working in vulnerable industries during a pandemic? It For the women who worked in Atlanta, it took many days to identify who they were. We didn't even know who they were, right? Yeah. One of them had no family members in the United States, period. And when you look at their ages, some of them were much older. And if you've ever drove by or been to the Gold Spa 
that is not a place where you would want to work and you wouldn't want to see your mother working there. But they were women who were struggling to take care of their family Mm. members and working at a place during a pandemic. And we didn't even know who they were. Nobody besides one woman who had two sons, nobody was sitting around wondering where they were. If any one of us went missing, people would be calling, texting, figuring out what happened to us. And it was days before we even know who these women were. Yeah, a lot of people in the community, as you know, say they feel invisible at times. Two of those spas right around the corner from our WABE right. studios and uh, uh, just brings back that that somber day and, and many tears. But, but Lisa, can I say something real quick? You know, I, I got to brag on you uh, for a second because, you know, you had the idea to, to bring Representative Wynn on. And, and the one thing that is so unique about this podcast is... Be you, you're the perfect person to just do what you just did. And as a person of color, you are a person of color. Lisa's a person of color. We are minorities in this country. And for you to be able to come on and articulate what you just articulated is what our listeners need to hear. You know, so many times we come over here and we get partisan politics and it may make some folks feel uncomfortable for what you just said, B. But to me, correct me if I'm wrong, this is probably the first sort of... Um, avenue sort of vehicle unscripted that you probably had to talk to a local educated audience not about just what happened that day but to again take us down the road of like walking in your shoes what you had to deal with emotionally into now so thank you for what you just said and Lisa thank you for allowing her to speak truth to power because I think that's what our listeners need to hear um, on this podcast because uh, I'm I'm emotionally moved because again I think it was a tough day for me. I mean Brian and I, our friendship is not the same, um, and we got to be able to say that publicly, you know. And that guy Trump always divides us too. But this that moment and <laughs> coming to try to have a educational conversation about it was very tough. But B, you just to me um, spoke up for your community, and people really need to play this back and and, and over and over again because we still have a long way to go. And the famous words of John Lewis B, who I know you admire and he admired you. I talked to him days before he passed away. You know, we got to get in good trouble. We got to speak truth to power. We got to get in the way. And I want to thank you for what you just said. Yeah. And Theron, one thing I can say about Representative Wynn, she always says yes. So we appreciate that. And again, I, I, echo, you know, his sentiments. Thank you so much for for sharing and sharing so deeply. We appreciate you. Thank you for stopping by political breakfast. Thank you, y'all. Thank you. Thanks, B. That was State Representative B. Wynn represents the 89th District and also a candidate for Secretary of State. So quickly, you two, before we get out of here today, you know, I touched on the mayoral race a tad, and I was looking for polling, you know, to be out, more polling, and, and I found one, Theron. I don't know, I could be wrong. Is, is the 11 Alive news poll the only one out there right now? And Mayor Reed polling 17% to Felicia Morris, 10%, and 39% undecided. So that's what struck me, 39% being undecided uh, three months before this all-important election. Lisa, I I can't tell you how many members of council, uh, CEOs of corporations here in in Georgia and, you know, um, just neighborhood leaders are trying to figure out what are people really thinking about this marriage race? And so when you look at this last poll, which, by the way, I think the poll does not reflect uh, where the electric is right now. You know, if you're Kasim Reed, you're at 17 percent. You're a two time mayor. So that means that 83 percent of the people who were polled 
didn't think you should be the mayor, right? But also, he's able to use those numbers, Lisa, to solidify that I am the the front runner in this race, and he does have the most name recognition. Uh, but if you're Felicia Moore, you know I've seen private and public polls where she's consistently in that number two, number three, and I think I'm sure she has some polls where she may be number one. The message I want to get to our listeners right now, Lisa, as someone who has been very instrumental in electing the last two mayors of Atlanta, the 59th mayor and the 60th mayor, polls in August in an Atlanta mayor's race, they just they don't matter as much as people make them to wow. matter, right? Because it's going to fluctuate. Um, and, and lastly, I'll say this. The one thing that a poll cannot predict is, I believe, the mood and the enthusiasm of the electric, meaning that I think people are so upset about crime. Uh, they want to fix it. Uh, they also are concerned about property taxes. They're concerned about basic services when it comes to, you know, getting their trash picked up and potholes. And also, you know, it's things like affordable housing. So I think we are either going to have a mass turnout where somebody's going to be a shocker in this race, or are we actually going to have a very average to below average turnout because I think a lot of folks are still confused and sort of apathetic about Senate Bill 202 and how they're supposed to vote, where can they go vote, what are going to be the restrictions. And so I think we're a long way from predicting a winner or people who will go to the runoff in this mayoral election. Brian, I don't know. Is the interest in this race at the level it should be at this point? Well, there's no money being spent right now, and that's going to be what drives interest in it. Once you start getting money behind these messages and people getting mail and people seeing TV commercials and radio ads, that's when you're going to see people begin to engage more and see those messages sink in, and that's when you're going to see the polling move and and settle a little bit. What, what Theron's talking about is true. What you're seeing right now is more a reflection of name ID. Wouldn't you agree with that, Theron? Absolutely. And and, and yeah. I did give your your buddy, your pal, uh, people who think you're working for him, Cassini Reed, credit in winning the name recognition game. Yeah, he does. He does win the name <laughs> recognition game. And for the record, I don't work for him. But I did. But I, I do come out of the deal administration where we had a very close relationship with Mayor Reed's office uh, back when such things were still possible. I was going to say, and he's leading the polls, yet he's facing new accusations, right, of illegal campaign funding. So what does that say? Well, I think what it says is right now the number one priority is crime, and the rest of it is like, yeah, whatever. You know, I mean, they're like, you know, it's like that old uh, Louisiana governor, like, uh, you know, it's important, vote for the crook. And, and I think that there could be some element of that because – People believe that he can clean up the streets because the city was relatively safe during his eight years in office. And and it wasn't always good times. He came in, it was, you know, it was great recession when he came into office. So we were, you know, it was it was rough. People losing their homes. I mean, you would think there would be more crime. And it's today that it's out of control. And so I think he's got a strong argument. I think what we're gonna see, this is my prediction. Again, I don't work for him. I think his numbers will hold. I think we can guarantee almost that he's going to be in a runoff. And I think he's got to be considered the odds-own favorite to win. The other thing we don't know is what Theron brought up, right, that we don't know who's going to break out. We don't know who that other person is going to be. And that's what that, that's what I'm waiting to see. All right. Quickly, before we get out of here, Stacey Abrams uh, announced this tour of what she calls exciting conversations that I, I think will more than likely focus on voting rights. Uh what are Republicans thinking? Are they on edge at this point with this announcement? Is she about to, to say, I am running for governor? 
Well, I would defer to Theron on whether or not she's going to run for governor. Uh, but she's certainly doing a nationwide tour and going to be everywhere and and extending her fundraising network, even though she doesn't really need any more fundraising network. She's kind of got that mastered. I will defer to Theron on what her plans are, but I tell you what, if she doesn't run, she is going to leave the Democratic Party of Georgia in great disarray. They are in a great position right now with Republicans infighting. And if she steps back, all of that infighting is going to erupt on the Democrat side, too. Theron, give us the last word. Lisa, I, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I believe Stacey Abrams is running for governor until she tells us that she's not. And so I think everyone has to sort of give her the time that she needs to really make the best decision for her personally and professionally. Be that as it may, Lisa, and then I got that out of the way. Um, I disagree with Brian. You know, again, I think Stacey is going to run. But if she doesn't run, we'll have a really, really good slate of people that can step up uh, and be very competitive. And I think the third thing is this. You know, one of the things we don't have to worry about with Stacey is she has the name ID. She's shown us that she's the best fundraiser we have on the Democratic side in Georgia. But I do think that there's got to be some conversations had in the background for, for whatever reason. If she decides not to run, then who's next up? But ultimately, I think we should position ourselves to basically plan for her to run. Now, this tour, this tweet Lisa, my phone started blowing up, not just in Georgia, nationally. Everybody's just like, well, does that mean that she's running for Here president? Comes. Here it comes. Yeah. Oh, and then the teaming okay. up with, I believe, the most popular Democrat right now uh, in the world, and that is uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama, teaming up with her to go around the country and talk about voting rights and talk about you know equality and social justice and all those things. And so I, I trust that her team— I thought you were going to say Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, because— <laughs> Is that no. so that she teamed up with her too? I mean, well, is there any celebrity uh, pair up that she won't do? Brian, the, listen, I think that's the question. But you know, but 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 so so Lisa, I I think that one thing that we know about Stacey Abrams is that she's very strategic, uh, she's very intelligent, and she's politically tested. So you know, I think she understood that by now having a Georgia stop on this tour would raise some questions, but ultimately. I do. I think we have a little bit more time to kind of see what's going to happen. But if we start getting into the end of the year and there's no clear sort of pathway, I do think that our party leaders are going to have to come together just to have some conversations about a plan, you know, if she doesn't run. That's right. And what's going to, in all seriousness, so last year, y'all did something that worked very well, right? The establishment cleared the way for Warnock. It was a big field. Lots of Democrats ran, but the establishment including Stacey Abrams, goes, that's my guy, give money to him. And it was it was a landslide for him. And he got through that special election in November without one negative ad being run against him. Not one. I mean, and Purdue um, uh, kind of had that luxury too, and Leffler and Collins ripped each other apart. So that's going to be the issue that I think, can they clear the way again without Stacey? And I would defer to Theron on this. Because it's going to get really hard because there's a lot of talent bubbling up in the Democratic Party right now. We just had B. Wynn on. I mean, she, she's one of them. and But she's one of many. And there's going to be a lot of people who get tired of waiting on the sidelines and waiting on Stacey Abrams to give them the go-ahead. 
All right. We'll save some of the conversation for next week. Republican strategist Brian Robinson, Democratic strategist Aaron Johnson. Always a pleasure. Thanks for being here today. See you next week. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.